You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. John chapter 13. We're going to be looking today at verses 18 through 20. And we'll read together verses 12 through 20. Beginning verse 12. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen. But it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, He who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Let's pray together. Our Father, it is our earnest desire that you would bless the preaching and teaching of your word and our understanding of it, that as we study your word together today, that this passage might come alive, not only in our minds, but in our hearts, and that we might leave here with a love and adoration for Christ. We thank you for his promises to us, and we thank you for your revelation of your Son, and of your will in your Son. And so we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to be our comforter and our guide this morning in your word. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, history has its fair share of traitors. And you could probably think back through American history to a number of traitors. A traitor is somebody who feigns an allegiance or love for one person or nation or power. And then after a period of time, for whatever reason, changes that allegiance and that love and betrays that person, power, or nation. And uh, you can think back through American history and probably think of a couple of them. Uh, don't think in terms of, of current history. We know there are traitors today. Um, we see their names on the ballot every two years. But I want you to think back through American history to ones in the past. And there's a couple of them that stand out in my mind. One, that whenever whenever I think of a traitor, an American traitor, I think of... And I forget the man's first name, but it was so-and-so and Ethel Rosenberg. I think the Rosenbergs the name. How many of you have ever heard of the Rosenbergs? Okay, maybe you know the name. Do you remember what they were? What's that? Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. Okay, his name wasn't so-and-so. It was Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. Okay, so do you remember what the Rosenbergs were, were notorious for? They were, I think, and this is all, I didn't research this anything, I just was thinking of this this morning before I got up here, so all of this is off the cuff, as it were. Uh, selling, I think, nuclear information to the Russians during World War II. And they were caught, and they were actually Russian spies who were working for the Russians while living in America, and they had in some way infiltrated high positions in the American government. And what is most notable in my mind about Ethel Rosenberg is for their treachery and their treason, they got the electric chair. But Ethel Rosenberg's first time through didn't take. She was still alive after the first one, and she had to be electrocuted twice, if memory serves me. Maybe you didn't think of the Rosenbergs when I mentioned a traitor, 
or American traders? Who would you think of? Go to the past now, not, not current. Go to the past. Somebody whose name is almost synonymous with trader. If I call you a Benedict Arnold, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? Probably the most infamous, infamous trader in American history. Well, the Bible has its fair share of traders as well. You read through the Old Testament and you will see a number of them. Read through the history of the nation of Israel. David's son Absalom was a traitor. He was a usurper of the throne. He betrayed David, turned on David, ran David out of Jerusalem, declared himself to be king. We talked about him last week. And then David, one of David's own close friends, Ahithophel, joined Absalom in his rebellion. Ahithophel was another example of a traitor. Then read through the rest of the history of the nation. You will find one person after another committing treachery against whoever was higher in the food chain than they were. You'll find sons killing their fathers for the sake of seizing control of the throne. Some sons killing their fathers and killing their brothers in order to seize control of the throne. It is almost one act of treachery after another. And then the New Testament has probably the most infamous traitor of all time in American history, in world history, inside the Bible, New Testament, outside the Bible, Old Testament, doesn't matter what you talk about. The most infamous traitor of all time is whom? Judas Iscariot. And he is probably most infinite in part due to his high position of trust that he had amongst the twelve. You see, Judas was not an ordinary man in the sense that he was just another face in the crowd who betrayed Jesus like the Pharisees. The Pharisees were hostile against the Lord Jesus, but they're not known for their act of treachery. What makes Judas so unique is the high position of influence and access to Christ that he had. What makes him so unique is that he had an access to Jesus that only few people had. And so that's what makes Judas's treachery so noteworthy, and not only not only because of his nearness to Jesus, but also, I think, because of the one whom he betrayed. There was nobody more undeserving of such treachery than the Lord Jesus. And so there is nobody who has committed a higher crime than Judas. He is the most infamous traitor of all time. That brings us to John chapter 13, where Jesus is now going to be revealing what he knows about this traitor and uh, we're going to be looking at verses 18 through 20 this morning. I just want to remind you of a couple things about the context. First, remember that the words that we're going to be looking at come on the heels. I didn't mean that pun. Come right at the edge of the foot washing. And Jesus teaching the lesson of the foot washing. Right on the heels of the foot washing is this treachery by Jesus and Jesus' revelation of Judas. So this is right after the foot washing ceremony. And that should bring to your mind the other significant thing about the contest, the second that Judas was there for that. Judas was there and he had his feet washed by the Lord Jesus on that night with the other disciples. And Judas is there among the twelve and though he has passed unnoticed by all the other disciples, none of the rest of them understood his motives. None of the rest of the disciples understood who he was, his character, his nature, any of that. They trusted him with their money. He was the treasurer. And none of them suspected Judas. But Jesus knew who the traitor was. So Jesus has washed Judas' feet. Judas has been there, and he is there for the conversation that we are about to read, for the words that we are about to read. Remember, Judas is not dismissed from this group until verse 27, which means that as Jesus has described not all of them being clean, some of them remaining unsaved, unregenerate, and unforgiven, as he has described that, as he has, in verse 10, singled out one among them who is not a true disciple, And as he begins to speak about one who is lifting up his heel against him, there are two people in that room who knew exactly what Jesus was talking about 
and exactly whom Jesus was talking about. It is Jesus and Judas. Judas knew what he was engaged in doing. And now Jesus is revealing before the disciples that, and Judas is there, that Jesus knows what Judas has been doing. He has put into plan, Judas has, Judas has put into action a plan to betray the sinless Son of God. He has already cut a deal with the Pharisees by this point, and Jesus is fully aware of everything that he has been up to. And the reason that Jesus reveals his knowledge of this event is in part to comfort the disciples. And we're going to see these words of comfort as we work our way through the text. But don't think for a moment that Jesus is revealing this because he wants to tell the other disciples about Judas so that they can scorn him. That's not the, that's not the point of the purpose of Jesus revealing his knowledge. Nor is Jesus revealing this to the disciples so that the disciples would stop Judas. Does Jesus want Judas stopped? He doesn't. He has been going toward the cross since the beginning of the Gospel of John. He came to die and he knows that. Jesus is not interested in making sure that Scripture remains unfulfilled. Jesus is not trying to stop Judas. Could Jesus have stopped Judas? Did he have the power to do that? Don't you think that somebody who made blind men see could make a seeing man blind? Don't you think that somebody who made mute men speak could make a speaking man mute? That he could cripple Judas? Or that he could simply snatch Judas's life away from him? Jesus is not interested in stopping Judas. It's not as if Jesus is saying, you know, I'm sensing that something's not right here amongst the twelve of you. We need to ferret out who the traitor is here and stop him. That's not the point of all of this. The point of Jesus revealing this is to comfort his disciples and to let them know before all of these events come crashing down on them that he knows exactly what is going on. It is all under his control and he knows about it ahead of time. It is all going according to divine plan. So there are words of comfort in these final words of of this part of the discourse. There are words of comfort here as Jesus is comforting his disciples. And we can draw comfort from three things. And this brings us to our text, verses 18 to 20. First, we can draw words of comfort or we can draw comfort from his choice of the true disciples. That's verse 18. His control over the false disciple, that's verse 19. And then his commission of the true disciples in verse 20. His choice of the true disciples, his control over the false disciple, Judas, and his commission of the true disciples. Let's begin with verse 18, which is his choice of the true disciples. Verse 18. I do not speak of all of you. Now stop there for a second. Keep in mind what he has just said before this. He has, he has told the disciples, you are my slaves, I am your master. You are the sent ones, I am the one who is sending you. Now he is speaking to the twelve of them, and he has told the twelve of them, in verse 10, you are clean, but not all of you. And he has distinguished between those who are clean and the one who is not. And then there is the promise in verse 17, you know these things, but blessed are you if you do them. So he has promised a blessing upon the one and upon those who do the things that he has encouraged them to do. Sacrificial service in ways that are evidenced like with the foot washing. But not all of you. In other words, there is one among you who is not my slave. I am not his master. He is not sent by me in the same way that everybody else here is sent by me. Uh, he is not blessed if he does these things. In no way can we say that the blessing of God rested upon the devil, Judas. Not the literal devil, but one who is inspired by Satan, who it was devilish. In no way, in no way can we say that the blessing of God would rest upon him for his sacrificial servant attitude. It wouldn't. So Jesus is singling out Judas 
And they already got the message in verse 10 when Jesus said to them, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you, that is plural you, the disciples, are clean, but not all of you. And he's speaking to all twelve, but he singles out the one who is not clean. In other words, not regenerate and not saved. And he's doing it again in verse 18 when he says, I do not speak of all of you. In other words, there's a blessing upon you for your service. You're sent, you're my slaves, but not all of you. There is among you one who is not my slave, not my servant. I'm not his master, and he has no blessing from me for anything that he does. I speak. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen. Now, what does Jesus mean when he says, I know the ones I have chosen? In order to answer that question, we have to answer the question, what type of choosing is Jesus describing here? Not all choosings, not all electings in Scripture are the same. They're not all identical. For instance, there is national election where God chose a nation. That is the nation of Israel. And because God chose that nation through whom he would bring the promised seed and make a covenant with one of its kings, David, and he would pour out upon that nation blessings and establish in that nation and for that nation a kingdom. Because God chose that nation out of all the nations on the face of the earth. Was everybody in that nation saved? No, they weren't. Not all of Israel is Abraham's seed. Only some of national Israel, though they enjoyed a national election, not all of them were saved. And then there is an individual election. This is the type of election spoken of in Ephesians 1, when Paul says, He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. That is a salvific, a saving election. That's an individual election. It's not the election of nations. It is the choice of individuals from within all nations to belong to Christ. That's individual or what we call predestining election, election to salvation. And then there is also the choice of service. Now, Judas would have enjoyed this election, and that was Christ choosing him to be a disciple. But just because Christ chose him to be a disciple does not mean that he was saved. He was simply elected or chosen to fulfill the office of disciple for a specific person, purpose. Now, did Judas enjoy national election and the benefits of that? Yes, he did. He was a Jew. Did Judas enjoy election to office or function because he was a disciple? Yes, he did. He was chosen to that. But did Judas enjoy election to salvation? He wasn't. Jesus identified him back in chapter 6, around verse 70 or so, identified him as a devil. Judas was not saved. He never was saved. He wasn't a believer who lost his salvation. He wasn't a believer who became demon-possessed. Judas was not saved, and he was never saved. And though he enjoyed national election, and though he enjoyed election to the group of disciples, he never did enjoy the grace of election unto salvation. So there are three different types of elections. Now, what type of election or choice, and there are probably others, but these three will be sufficient for this morning. Which of those elections do you think that Jesus is talking about in verse 18 when he says, I know the ones whom I have chosen? National election is nowhere in the context whatsoever. You can't be talking about national election. Is he talking about election to office? It doesn't seem to be describing the ones I've chosen for discipleship. He is distinguishing between the true and the false. If he is distinguishing between those who are true, who had salvation and did believe, and the false, the one who did not have salvation and did not believe, which one of those elections is he describing? I know the ones I have chosen. Out of the twelve, one of you is not mine. I know the ones who are mine. Now, some people are uncomfortable with seeing in this passage divine election unto salvation. And they say, no, 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 all that's being described here is 
Judas being selected for the office of disciple, to be a disciple. That's all that's being described here. If that's all that Jesus is speaking of, then the whole distinction between the true and the false, the real and the fake, is meaningless. But the entire context is describing salvation. He has said in verse 10, you are clean, but not all of you. He's describing the regenerate and the unregenerate, the true and the false. And all the way through this passage, as Jesus is making the distinction, he is distinguishing not between 12 men, all who share the same election, but he is distinguishing between 11 men who enjoy one type of divine grace and one man who was the beneficiary of another type of divine grace, but not a divine grace that was unto salvation. So with that in mind, since Jesus is describing an election unto salvation, what is he saying here to Judas? And about Judas, that Judas did not belong to him. One of them, one of those men here, Judas, is himself the son of perdition. And this whole idea of of, of Jesus being uh, using words like this, though I know the ones whom I have chosen, that is something that we've come to expect in the Gospel of John, is it not? We saw it in John 6. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. We saw it in John 10 that the Father has given to the Son sheep, and those who are not of his sheep will not believe. But how many of his sheep will believe? My sheep hear my voice and they come to me and I know them and they know me and I give to them eternal life and they will never perish. And I hold them in my hands. So all the way through this gospel, Jesus has described the salvation and the security of those who belong to him by the choice and action of the Father. And he is describing the same thing here. But notice that so closely is the will of the Father and the will of the Son tied together that to speak of the electing grace of the Father is also to describe the electing choice of the Son. What the Bible elsewhere describes as the Father's elect is here described as the Son's elect. I know the ones whom I have chosen. Judas is not one of them. So Judas is like the Pharisees who did not believe because they were not of his sheep. Do you think that Jesus at any time in his life, at any time since the moment he laid eyes on Judas, do you think Jesus was even for a moment ever deceived about Jesus, Judas's true nature? For one moment. Do you think Jesus ever wandered around saying, I wonder if Judas is one of my sheep? I guess I'll just have to wait and see if Judas believes before he dies to know if he belongs to me. Do you think that ever went through the Son of God's mind? He chose eleven who were his sheep and one who was not his sheep. Now you say, you say, why would Jesus do this? There is a reason for it. Before we get to that reason, it's the rest of verse 18. I want you to realize that, that this knowledge of the Son of God of his own should terrify the false believer and it should comfort the true believer. Here's how it should terrify the false believer. You look across, just look around you for just a second. If you're way up front, don't bother turning your rubber neck around to see everybody. But just kind of look across the aisle at everybody. Look around here. Speaking to a room like this, there is no possible way that I can tell who among you are true sheep who have believed and who among you are make-believers. And it is possible for people to be part of churches and to, to think that they are saved, even act like they are saved, and to put on good outward appearances and not actually be saved. And they're unregenerate. They're fake believers, but they put on a show for a long period of time. That's possible for that to happen. And we've seen examples of that in the Gospel of John. People who are said to have believed because they had an intellectual belief, but Jesus identifies them as false believers and make-believers. If you are one of those people who is a false believer, a make-believer, this knowledge, this revelation of Jesus that he knows his own should terrify you. Because though you may be able to pull the wool over everybody else's eyes here, when you die, you will stand before Christ and stand before his all-consuming gaze 
and His perfect knowledge of all those who are His. And you will not deceive Him because He knows your heart. He knows you. And He knows His own. And that should comfort the believer, the true believer. Because He will not lose any of His own, will He? How many will He leave behind? None of His own. How many will He lose? None of His own. He will save them all. He will raise them all up. That is the perfect salvation that the Father and the Son have provided for all those who belong to the Son. So as a genuine believer, I can sit back and say, I can take great comfort in the fact that at the end of time, He's not going to miss me. He knows His own, and if I belong to Him, that is perfect comfort. That He saves and secures all those who belong to Him. Now, why Judas? Why did Jesus choose Judas? Why Why is there this one who has been among them from the beginning, whom Jesus has known from the beginning? Why is there this one who who has been a fake believer from the from the very start, and even to this moment, hours before the arrest and crucifixion of Jesus, only hours prior, is still an unbeliever, but has still been admitted into the company of the disciples? Why hasn't Jesus, at some point prior to this, singled him out so that they could get rid of him and replace him with somebody else? Why is that? Verse 18. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the Scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Why was this one admitted to the company of the twelve and allowed such close access to the Son of God for three full years in order that the Scriptures might be fulfilled? Because it was impossible that one good word of God's Word should not be fulfilled. It was impossible that there would be even one prediction regarding the Messiah that would not come to pass exactly as God said it would come to pass. So think of all the prophecies that Judas fulfilled. Judas fulfilled this prophecy from Psalm 41, verse 9, which we looked at last week when we tackled that entire psalm. This prophecy from Psalm 41, verse 9, Judas fulfilled that. Uh, was it... I'll try to do it off the top of my head. It was another psalm that we read at the beginning of the, the service last week where Jesus described one who was his close friend who had betrayed him and 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 attacked him. That scripture was fulfilled by Judas. Jesus being sold for 30 pieces of silver and that money being used to buy a field and being thrown down in the potter's house. All of that was fulfilled by Judas. And Jesus' arrest and being betrayed by a kiss, the Scripture was fulfilled by Judas. And why did Jesus then admit Judas into the company of the twelve? Because Jesus knew that Scripture must be fulfilled. Now, here's a trick question. When Judas did what he did, did Judas do what he did in order to fulfill Scripture? Is that what Judas was thinking? Was Judas sitting there thinking this night, I need to make sure that I betray the Son of Man so that the prophecies regarding the Messiah will not remain unfulfilled? Is that why Judas did what he did? God had already predicted, and yes, predestined, the betrayal of Judas. God knew it, and He knew it fully, and he knew it infallibly. There is nothing that could unfold this evening which would take God by surprise. Not a single event, not a single word took God by surprise. He planned it, he prophesied it, and he predestined every last bit of it. But did Judas do anything here this night against his will? He did not. And this gives us another study, as we've seen so many times, between the relationship that exists between the sovereignty and the providence and the predestining a decree of God and human responsibility. Judas did what he did because of his greedy, unregenerate, self-seeking, evil-filled heart. That is what motivated Judas. Everything Judas did 
he did completely willingly. That is, he was free in the sense that he did exactly what he wanted and desired to do. But at the same time, every last thing that Judas did was predestined, predetermined, and prophesied by God and had to come to pass in order that the Scriptures would be fulfilled just as they were written. That is the amazing relationship that exists between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And we, we have said, I've said this a hundred times from behind this pulpit. We can never fathom the depths of that. We just have to stand back in awe and recognize that everything Judas did, every last action, completely his free, uncoerced, I use free in the sense of uncoerced, his completely free, uncoerced actions, motivated by his own heart, Judas did exactly what he wanted to do. He was not a robot. He was not coerced into betraying the Son of God. He did it quite willingly, and yet at the same time, that was God's predetermined plan and his predestined plan that this should come to pass in order that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Now, the Scripture that was fulfilled is the one we looked at last week in Psalm 41, verse 9. Do you notice in verse 18, when Jesus quotes that Scripture, that he doesn't quote the entire verse? Did anybody notice that? In verse 18, Jesus says, The Scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. But if you were paying attention last week, and I know that everybody here was, when we read verse 9, you probably recognized, well, hold on a second. Jesus only quotes the last half of that verse. Why? I'll read the whole verse. You look at verse 18. I'll read to you all of Psalm 41, verse 9. And you see if you can notice what is missing. Here's what Psalm 41, verse 9 says. Even my close friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, has lifted up his heel against me. Now why did Jesus not quote the first part of that verse? Even my close friend, in whom I trusted. Was Judas Jesus' close friend? Was he among the twelve? Yeah. But was Judas near to Jesus in the same way that Peter, James, and John were near to Jesus? No. He was among the twelve, but he wasn't a close friend. Even my close friend in whom I trusted. Did Jesus trust Judas? If Jesus trusted Judas, that was a trust that was misplaced. Jesus was not deceived regarding Judas. David might have trusted his friend, But Jesus didn't trust Judas. Jesus knew from the beginning that Judas was going to betray him. And Jesus chose Judas to the office of disciple so that the Scripture might be fulfilled, that he would be the one who would fulfill this prophecy and that prediction. So was Judas a close friend? No, he wasn't. Was Judas one in whom Jesus trusted? No, he wasn't. So in no way can Jesus say, Judas is my close friend and I trusted in him because neither one of those was true. But the part of the prophecy that was fulfilled by Judas was that he who ate bread with Jesus had lifted up his heel against him. And it might be that what Jesus has in mind here is not just the close fellowship that Judas had enjoyed over the course of the last three years since Jesus chose him to be a disciple, but also the act which takes place later in verse... Let me see if I can find off. Verse 26, Jesus then answered, This is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. So it might be that even that act, what Jesus has in mind by he who ate my bread, is even this act which would take place immediately after this, where Jesus would dip the morsel in the the wine and give it to Judas, and Judas would eat the bread that Christ gave to him. 
the indication, Jesus is indicating there who the betrayer would be. And in that very act, not just in the communion they had enjoyed for uh, and the closeness that Judas had proximity-wise to Jesus for all of that time, but even in the act of eating that bread that night, Judas was fulfilling that prophecy of eating the bread and then turning around and lifting up his heel. John MacArthur in his commentary uh, on John offers a great modern equivalent in our vernacular to that phrase, lifted up his heel. It kind of has the idea of kicking me when I was down. That's, that's the imagery. It is a, a vicious attack against somebody who is in a position where they are helpless or down. And Jesus wasn't helpless in the sense that he couldn't do anything about it, but it is in that sense a vicious attack of one who was trusted by him. He lifted up his heel against me. So we can take comfort in the fact that Jesus, our Savior, knows the ones whom he has chosen. He has chosen his true disciples. And so we're comforted by that. Second, there is comfort in the in his control over the false disciples. Look at verse 19. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am. You'll notice in your English translation, the word he there, and if your English translation is accurate and truthful, it'll have he in italics, because the he is not in the original. It's just ego I me. It is the Greek, the, the Greek version of the name for God from Exodus 3, verse 14, which Jesus has taken to himself through John's gospel on more than one occasion, where he says something and declares himself to be the I am. He's using it here again. Our translators, our translators insert the word he and put it in italics to let us know. That's not a translation of anything in the original, but it kind of helps make the sentence flow. And it does help make the sentence flow, but then we have to answer the question, who's the he? Who, who is he? I am. I am, if you're theologically astute, helps kind of make it all make sense. Because the presence of he kind of obscures the meaning. I am who? I'm he? Who's he? Well, he is the I am. And Jesus is saying to them, I have told you this, that is that somebody is going to betray me, lift up his heel against me, that one of you is a devil. I have told you this so that when all of the events of this evening come crashing down around us, you will realize that I am. Let that name just sort of hang there. Because they would have realized this. Uh, there is a sense in which Jesus is, there's a sense in which Jesus is preparing the rest of the disciples for what was about to unfold, lest their faith be shaken. I appreciate the words of Leon Morris in his commentary. He says, we should not miss the tender concern implied in this prediction. The disciples might well have been seriously shocked and their faith shattered had the betrayal taken them completely unawares. And there's a sense in which that is probably true. But as they would reflect upon the evening after the initial shock of Judas did this, that as they reflected upon that, they would realize, hold on a second, Jesus predicted all of this. He knew it was going to happen. He knew who was going to do it. He knew the future perfectly before it ever happened. Do you know what is true of somebody who knows the future perfectly before it ever happened? Do you know what we call that person? God. Yeah, that's the point of the book of Isaiah, the last part of the book of Isaiah in what we would call the trial of the false gods section, where Isaiah, in God, through Isaiah, indicts the nation of Israel and says, ask your idols what the future holds. Have your idols declare for you the end from the beginning. Have your idols tell you everything that is going to pass before anything ever comes to pass. Have your idols do that. And of course, there's this, this mocking section where the idols cannot speak. They're carved out of wood and they can't say anything. And so, of course, they can't know the future. But then God says, I know the future, and I will tell you, I'm going to raise up Cyrus, a man at the time who had not even been born, and Isaiah, God through Isaiah, identifies the one who would return the Jews to their homeland. I will raise up Cyrus, and God gives them detailed predictions of the entire future. To what end? 
God says in Isaiah that you may know that I alone am God and there is no other God. Have your idols declare the future. Have your idols tell the future. And what is Jesus doing here? I'm telling you the future so that you will know that I am. And after the shock wore off, the disciples would sit around and say, hold on a second. There's only one being in all the universe that knows the future. And you say, what about the prophets? They seem to know the future. They knew the future only because God knew the future and revealed the future through the prophets. Well, is Jesus then just another prophet? No, if Jesus was just another prophet, he would say, I told you this before it comes to pass, so that when it happens, you may believe that I am a prophet. He doesn't say that. He says, I told you this so that you might know that I am and that you might believe in me as the I am. So we can take comfort in the fact that God knows and controls even the false disciples who are among us. And then number three, we can take comfort in his commission of the true disciples. Verse 20, truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Now I'll confess, when I first read that verse, I I scratched my head and I thought, okay, what does that have to do with the context? That seems a little out of place, does it not? What does verse 20 have to do with false disciples, Judas, the fulfillment of Scripture, the foot washing, this just seems a little bit out of place. It's not the only place where Jesus has used language like this. I'll give you one example from each of the other three Gospels. Notice the similarity of language. Matthew chapter 10, verse 40. He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward, and he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones, even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. In Mark chapter 9, taking a child, he set him before them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. Luke 10, verse 16, the one who listens to you listens to me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. Now look at verse 20 again, truly, truly I say to you, He who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Now, what is is the connection of that to the rest of the immediate context? It's not obvious at first glance, but I think once we work through it, you'll see there is some significant connections even to this context. First, we have to determine, oh, by the way, the other three gospel accounts that I just read to you, all of those, as far as I can tell by reading the context of all of those, they're all on different occasions regarding different things. And different occasions even than this in John's Gospel. So what we have is Jesus using language like this and kind of teaching this truth on at least four different occasions that we can see. But what is the context here? How is it connected to the context here? Let's first of all grasp its meaning, which I don't think is is really veiled to any of us. We can kind of see what it means by just working our way through it. And then I will, I hope, show you how it is connected to the context. First, what does it mean? The meaning is really simple. Verse 20 Truly, truly, I say to you that he who receives whomever I send receives me. Straightforward enough, somebody whom Christ has commissioned and sent goes with the message as his ambassador, his representative, the one who receives that one who is sent, is because of his commission receiving at the same time the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, you welcome him, you welcome me. You do good to him, you do good to me. You provide for him, you provide for me. You 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 love him, you love me. If you reject him, you reject me. Now, we understand the concept of being ambassadors for Christ. When a country kicks out your ambassador, or when somebody attacks and kills your ambassador, what does that say about that country or that person's attitude 
toward the country that the ambassador represents. It says that in rejecting the ambassador, we are doing this by proxy to the entire nation that the ambassador represents. Well, we are ambassadors for Christ. And so we go with a message of reconciliation to a lost world. The ones who receive us as his ambassadors receive at the same time the Lord Jesus Christ. But it goes beyond that. Look at the rest of verse 20. He who receives me receives him who sent me. Such is the union between the Father and the Son that to embrace the Son is to embrace the Father as well. And we've seen this through John's Gospel where Jesus has said something similar to this. The Father has sent me, and if you hate me, you will hate the Father. You only hate me because you hate the Father. If you love the Father, you would love me. If you accepted the Father, you would accept me. If you embrace my word, it's the same as embracing the Father's word. Such is the connection between the Father and the Son by virtue of their oneness of nature that to embrace the Son is to embrace the Father. Now, put it all together. What does it mean? The one whom the Son has sent is a representative not just of the Son, but of the Father who sent the Son. So to embrace or to welcome a believer who is an ambassador of Jesus Christ, one of Christ's own, is to welcome and embrace the Son and with the Son to get the Father as well. To reject one whom the Son has sent is to reject the Son and to reject the Father. Now, you get the chain that is there. That's relatively simple, but once again... What does any of that have to do with John 13? Let me give you three possible, and I think all of these will work, connections to this context. Had Judas embraced or rejected the Son? Rejected the Son, right? But in Judas' act of betrayal, he had not just rejected Jesus. He was actually betraying and rejecting the entire lot of the disciples. All the rest of the eleven were likewise the recipients of his betrayal. Just as Jesus would feel the sting of that, so would the rest of the disciples. We trusted this guy with our money. We ate bread with this guy. We were on the same page as this guy. We were waiting for the kingdom. We sat around and complained about our wives with this guy, and now he is betraying us like that? Judas's act of treachery is not just an act of treachery against Jesus. It is an act of treachery against the disciples. Now put that into the context of verse 20. What is Jesus saying? Judas has rejected you. But in rejecting you, he has what? Rejected me, and he has rejected the Father as well. I think Jesus is pointing to Judas in verse 12. That's Though that is not what is said, that is what is said by implication. Judas, having if he had embraced the testimony of the disciples and embraced Jesus, would have at the same time been receiving Christ and receiving the Father. But since Judas had rejected the testimony of the disciples and rejected Jesus, he rejected the Father as well. There's a second connection, I think, to the to the context. I think what Jesus is doing here in using this language is restating the mission that he had given to them on at least three other occasions. Three other occasions. He is saying to them, though there is a traitor in your midst, that fact should not sidetrack you from the mission. The mission is still on. I'm sending you. You're going to be betrayed, but don't let the abandonment and the treachery of one of your number sidetrack you from the mission. The mission is still a go. I'm sending you, and it is still true that whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives the Father who sent me. So don't let the presence of this traitor get you off track. And then there, I think, is a third connection to this context, and it has to do with the foot washing. Jesus had just washed their feet and just told the disciples that they were to do likewise. They were to humble themselves and to submit themselves to one another, caring for one another, serving one another with humility. So in calling them to that, Jesus was calling the disciples to a lowly path 
a path of sacrifice and humility and lowliness. But here is the point. You and I ought not to think that the path that He has called us to walk as a servant, we ought not to think lowly or little of that path. Because this is one of the paradox of Christian life and service. That the lowliest Christian in the kingdom who serves the Lord in the most humble and sacrificial ways is the greatest among us. The lowliest of Christians who serves the Lord faithfully like that is himself one who is commissioned and sent by the king himself. And so we notice a, a believer among us who is, who is, who is small, who seems insignificant in the eyes of the world. He or she seems like nothing, but they're servant-hearted, they're sacrificial, and they're truly humble. You know what the irony of it is? They're the greatest. And to embrace that one is to embrace Christ Himself, and thus the Father. And to reject that lowly one is to reject Jesus Christ Himself and to scorn even the Father Himself. The inheritance... The future, the glory, the position, the dignity of the lowliest, humblest Christian is greater even by far, immeasurably so, than that of the President of the United States. If you reject the President of the United States, look, that's nothing. I mean, seriously, it's nothing. If the President called me up and said, hey, I would like to get together and talk to you. I said, no, I've got time to talk to you. I wouldn't say that because I have a lot of things I'd like to say to him. But I mean, if I had said that, if I just said, no, I don't have the time to talk to you. I don't want to get together. I'm not interested at all. Take your retinue and all your stuff and go talk to somebody else. Go fly a kite. I don't care. For me to do that and to look down upon him, that's nothing. It's nothing. He's an unregenerate man. You say, but he's one of the greatest, greatest in terms of position and power and influence in the world. Yeah, you're right, but but he's nothing. To embrace him, to walk him into my house, that's nothing. It's nothing. The lowest of Christians, the most humble and the most meek, is greater by far than the President of the United States. Because to embrace that one, to welcome that one, is to welcome the King of Kings. You see, so even though Christ calls us to a lowly, humble, and sacrificial position of service and sacrifice and foot washing, there is this paradox that that is in fact the greatest thing because the one doing that has been sent by the King of Kings himself. And so the lowliest of Christians is greater by far than the greatest of unregenerate men or women, by far. And in future, we will see the true glory of those whom Christ has sent revealed for all of the world to see. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, we thank you that you have called us out of darkness into light and again given us your word to teach us these things. We thank you that you are such a marvelous God and that you, in the person of your Son, humbled yourself and took upon flesh and and dwelt in human flesh in order to bear our sin upon the cross. Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, for doing that. O divine Son, we are grateful for that work of redemption which you have accomplished on behalf of those who are yours. And teach us never to trust in outward appearances or to rely upon outward appearances, but to humble ourselves and to embrace those who are the lowest among us. We thank you that our future really holds and will unfold and will display forever the glory of those who are yours in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.